Well, the Christmas season is about waiting, it's about wonder, and it's about worship. It's about light shining in the darkness, about glory in the midst of the ordinary. It's about turning things upside down, or really turning things right side up. It's about promises kept, the kindling of hope, and the dawning of a new day. But it is not about those things merely in the abstract. It is about those things concretely connected to the birth of Jesus the Messiah, the coming of the Son of God into the world as a man, the Savior King who has come to rescue His people. And to understand the significance of that moment of the story, we need to start at the beginning. The birth of Jesus was not the result of a sudden impulse on God's part, nor was it an unexpected event that We can only ascribe importance to looking back after the fact. You know, sometimes in our own lives, we don't realize something is significant in the moment, but later we look back and say, that was a big deal. Well, this was a big deal, and people knew it when it happened, and they had been waiting for it for a long time. It was the fulfillment of God's plan put in motion from the beginning, the fulfillment of promises made long ago, the fulfillment of hopes that were kindled and cultivated by the prophets as they prepared the people for God himself to come to dwell among them. So, let's begin at the beginning, shall we? I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be looking at various parts of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as we read from those chapters earlier. We want to start with the opening verse of the Bible, the beginning of the story, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, before there was anything that created, or that was created, there was someone who created all those things, who created us, who created the heavens and the earth. And he doesn't have a beginning. He was there already in the beginning. He has always existed. He always will exist. And he is our creator, our maker. And because he's our creator and because he is our maker, we belong to Him. We are accountable to Him. We are supposed to listen to Him and to obey Him. And He's the one who made not only us, and not only the earth, but also the heavens and everything in them. When it says that He created the heavens and the earth, it's like us talking about doing something day and night. It just it, It's meant to cover everything, right? So He made the earth. Yes, He made all the things on the earth. He made the heavens, all the sun, moon, stars, all the galaxies out there. He created all of it. All of it owes its existence to Him. And that's where the story begins. With a God, the God, who made everything else 
that exists, including us. In fact, the climax of the first story in the Bible, the story of creation, is not the creation of the burning sun. It's not the creation of all those galaxies flung out into the heavens that we get to see pictures of now because we have all this technology where we can see what these far-off galaxies look like. And they are amazing. The, the splendor of what God has created is hard to even capture in words, right? And yet the climax of the story of God's creation that we read in uh, beginning in verse 26 is not the creation of those things, but it's the creation of human beings, the creation of man, male and female. And the reason why I say that that is the climax of creation is not only because it comes last, but also because God says something about creating us that he doesn't say about creating anything else. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Nothing else that God has made up to this point, not the plants, not the animals, nothing that God has made up to this point has he said about it, I want it to be like me. I want to make it in my image. I want it, excuse me, to bear my likeness. But he does say that about us. He gives us a privileged position, a uh, unique responsibility. Uh, he makes us to reflect his character, his glory, his likeness. We are meant to represent him in our lives upon the earth. So we are created in his image. And he speaks a word of blessing to us in verse 28. It says, so he created them, he created them uh, male and female, he created them in his image and likeness. And then verse 28 says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God blessed us to bear offspring. That was a part of his plan from the beginning. That children would be a part of God's chief work in the world. And we're going to see that even more clearly a little bit later. But um, you see it in, for example, when Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem on the week before his crucifixion. And he comes to uh, the temple, I think, even. And there are, there are young children who are singing Hosanna and singing praises. And Jesus' enemies are like, make those people stop. And Jesus says, haven't you read? And he quotes from Psalm 8 where it talks about out of the mouths of infants and babes. Right? God has ordained praise. God has, from the beginning, intended to bless the earth through children. That's one of the reasons why we are so grateful that we have so many kids here at this church. We're so blessed to have these families and to have these children and to be a part of God's work in their life. We, we love that, right? Because God loves that. So he blesses them, tells them to be fruitful. And he also says that, he, uh, that we are created to reign, Notice, after he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he says also, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
God created man in his image, male and female, he created them, blessed them, told them to be fruitful, and also charged them to rule, to reign, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. God, as the creator, is the one who reigns over all, but he created us to reign under him, to exercise godly rule, right? godly reign upon the earth. That's what he intended in the beginning for Adam and Eve to do. And he put them in this beautiful garden, right? And he provided for them abundantly. And it's a glorious picture. We might even say uh, an idyllic picture of man living in fellowship with God in the beginning. The only reason it seems idyllic, and and by that I mean like almost too good to be true, like something somebody just made up, like a fairy tale beginning. The reason it feels that way is because of how far we have fallen and how quickly we fell. But the reason it resonates with us, the reason we long for something like that, is because that is where we were created to be. That is how we were created to live. But the fall, man's fall into sin, follows hard on the heels of creation. And the consequences of that fall were catastrophic. What God told Adam in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 and 17, was this. It said, well, it says, the Lord, took, Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So God abundantly provides. But he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. With that one restriction, that one prohibition, God makes clear that though he created us to reign, he did not create us to be gods. He created us to reign under God. We were not created with ultimate authority. We were not created with uh, complete self-determining rule or autonomy. We don't get to do whatever we want, in other words. We have to follow the restrictions that God has placed upon us. And that has been true from the very beginning. God places limits on us and says, you cannot go Beyond this, if you do, there will be consequences. So he tells Adam, you can eat of every tree in this garden except this one. And if you eat of this one, you're going to die. And of course, we know what happened. The serpent slithered in. Well, he didn't slither because apparently he didn't slither till later. But the serpent came into the garden and he struck up a conversation with Eve and he slandered God's character and motivations. He said, the only reason God told you not to eat from that tree is because he's holding out on you. There's something good you could get from that tree that God doesn't want you to have because he wants to have something that you can't have. But if you take it, then you'll have it too. You'll be like God. Of course, that's not why God told them not to eat from it. God's 
motivations were not selfish, were not evil, certainly. They were good. He wanted Adam and Eve to trust him and to love him, and he'd given them abundant reason to do so. He had surrounded them with everything they could possibly want until they wanted something they weren't supposed to have. And they took it. And so there were consequences for that. God says to the woman in verse 16 of chapter 3 that her pain and childbearing is going to be multiplied so that blessing of bearing children that God spoke to them about in the beginning or spoke about in the beginning now is going to be tied up with all kinds of pain, even grief at times. There's pain in childbearing. There's pain in work. Work is good. God told Adam to work the garden and to keep it. He told him that before there was sin, before the fall. Work is good. But now God says to Adam in verse 17, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He goes on and says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's pain for the woman in childbearing. There's pain for the man in his labor as he works to provide food. He also is going to experience pain and hardship. And we know that saying, right? Life is hard and then you die. That's a pretty bleak summary. And it's definitely not the whole picture. It's not a bad summary of verse 19. Your life is going to be painful. You're going to work. You're going to sweat. It's going to be hard. And then you're going to return to the ground. Now, thankfully, that's not the whole story. Because that would be really depressing. But that is part of the story. That is reality. Life is hard. We should not be surprised by it. We know why it's that way. right? It's because of sin. We brought it on ourselves. So there are consequences, not only pain for the man and the woman, but also, remember God warned them. God warned Adam, if you eat of this, you're going to die. Well, they didn't die physically right away, but they will. They did die spiritually right away. The Bible says about all of us that uh, we're dead in our trespasses and sins until we are made alive in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're alive because God has given you new life. But before we come to Christ, we're dead in our sin. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They sinned, they died spiritually. And that is portrayed for us in the last half of chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, or the last part of chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden, where it says, verse, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. He lived in a place where he could eat from the tree of life and live forever. But not anymore. It says, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in our um, sort of like 
folklore and fairy tales and stuff. Right? There's all these stories about uh, the fountain of youth, right, or an attempt to achieve immortality in some way. There's a couple different ways you can look at that. You could say, well, that's just people just want to live longer. People want life to last longer. So they just come up with these stories. Or you could say, maybe they're borrowing from something true. If we believe the Bible, that seems to be the truth, right? That there was a way that God intended for us to live forever from the beginning. We lost it. We were cut off from it because of our sin. So they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're not allowed to access the tree of life anymore. It's a sentence of death. Right, that comes upon them because they did not trust God, because they did not obey Him, because they did not limit themselves according to the, to the limits that God had placed upon them. And so God spoke a curse. The ground was cursed, there's pain, there's death. But even in the curse, there's a promise. Even in the bad news, there's good news. And in particular, in the curse that is spoken to the serpent, there's good news for the man and the woman and for us. In verse 14, God speaks to the serpent first, and he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. That's why I said, maybe I shouldn't have said he slithered into the garden, because apparently he didn't. But he's going to slither out, right? Because now he's got to go on his belly. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So a curse comes down upon the serpent because he deceived the woman. Because he aimed to lead her and her husband away from God. He receives a curse upon himself. And in verse 15, God says, I will put enmity. And that's not a word we use a lot. Think of hostility, animosity, conflict, right? That's what this means. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this curse announced upon the serpent is also a promise for us. Because it contains what we call the first gospel promise. It's the first time God speaks about the coming of His Son into the world to redeem us, to save us. He says to the serpent that there's going to be conflict not only between Him and the woman who He deceived, but also between the serpent's offspring, those who are going to follow the serpent in distrusting God, rebelling against God, going against God's word, and the offspring of the woman. And then he says, it's not just about her offspring, meaning like all of the people, all of the children who will come from her line, which is going to be a lot, right? Because like later Adam's going to say, she's, she's Eve because she's the mother of all living. But it's not about her offspring in general, but about one offspring in particular. Notice that's why it says at the end of the verse, he. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God says to the serpent, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to be easy for you. And there's going to come from this woman whom you deceived, whom you led astray from me, one day from her line, there's going to be born a baby boy. And you and that boy are going to be in conflict. And you are going to wound him. Right? You're going to bruise his heel. But he is going to crush your head. This woman that you led astray, from her is going to come your undoing. From her is going to come a baby, a child who is going to conquer you, who is going to crush you. So from the beginning, Satan is put on notice that his days are numbered. That he is not going to win. Though he struck the first blow, he's not going to strike the winning blow. And not only is this child going to crush the snake, which is putting Satan on notice, but God also tells us about the kind of Savior we should be looking for. Not only is it going to be a child, a male child who's going to be born, but he also tells us right here from the beginning that we are going to be looking for a wounded victor. Right? A wounded winner. A wounded conqueror. Not a conqueror who never gets touched, who never suffers, who never experiences anything hard. Our Savior, this child who's going to be born, He is going to be bruised. He is going to be wounded. The serpent is going to strike. And to be struck on the heel by a serpent is not a small thing. It's not a small wound. You don't brush that off. It's serious. Jesus tells us when he's going to the cross what he's about to do, what he's about to accomplish. And one of the things he says that's about to happen as he goes to the cross in John 12 is he says, now is the ruler of this age, the ruler of this world, cast out. Satan, this serpent, is about to be defeated. How? Through Jesus' suffering on the cross. And we know Satan was involved because uh, the, the scripture says that Satan entered the heart of Judas when he went to betray Jesus. So Satan is at work seeking to wound Jesus, seeking to bring him down. And he does accomplish, so to speak, getting him to the cross. Though Jesus is going willingly and it's God's plan, right? But Judas and Satan there involved. Jesus receives this wound, but he receives it in order to conquer, in order to crush. It is precisely by laying down his life and dying in our place that he conquers our enemy, that he crushes the serpent, that he wins for us 
the victory. Colossians 2.15 says that God has triumphed over the evil powers, right? Over Satan, over demonic forces. He has triumphed over them in him, that is in Christ crucified. So we have a promise of a coming child who will be a suffering savior. That's how Isaiah describes him. Right? He'll be wounded for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. He had to be crushed for us in order to crush the serpent and save his people. And there's one more picture of the salvation that he's going to bring in, uh, in uh, Genesis 3. It's in verse 21. Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, they were naked and not ashamed. Right? They had nothing to hide, no sin, no shame, no embarrassment whatsoever. But as soon as they ate of the tree that they were told by God not to eat from, they tried to hide. They tried to sew together fig leaves to make themselves coverings. They tried to hide in the garden when they heard God coming. Our, our inclination to hide and cover and pretend like nothing bad happened while we slink away into the darkness. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. But God didn't let them hide. He called them out. He sought them out. And because He's gracious and merciful, not only did He give them a promise of a coming Savior, but He provided for them true covering. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The way that they had tried to cover their sin was inadequate, embarrassingly so. But God provides a true covering for them. And notice how he does it. So, sometimes we have to kind of step out of what we think we know about what's going on in the Bible and put ourselves in the shoes of the people who heard it first. We know that Moses is the one who wrote the first books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so the first people who heard this account as it was written by Moses in the book of Genesis would have been the Israelites. And what are the Israelites doing all the time? They're sacrificing animals, offering blood sacrifices, It's part of their daily routine, their daily ritual. Now, if they read that God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin, you don't have to tell them where those garments came from, because they know. Where do garments of skin come from? They come from dead animals. And why would Israel kill animals, often to sacrifice them? What seems to be happening here, in other words, is that God is making the first sacrifice to cover his people in the wake of their sin. And what that is pointing to is that when Jesus comes and lays down his life as the once for all sacrifice, the one true sacrifice that can take away sin once and for all, then we become clothed not with animal skins, but with the righteousness of Christ. That we become His, and His righteousness becomes ours. So that our sins are not only washed away, but we are covered. We are clothed as though we had lived the spotless, sinless life 
of Jesus. All that's right there in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. This was the plan from the beginning. The wait was long, longer, I suspect, than anyone expected for the Messiah to come. But God is not slow to keep his promises. He is patient. He is faithful. He is wise. He is the one who brings the light of life into the darkness of sin. He is the one who kindles hope in a time of despair. And at just the right time, he sends his own son as the Savior we all need. And the good news is there's not anything that you or I have to do or had to do to earn that or to deserve that. It's simply a gift of God's grace given to all who will believe and receive His Son. No wonder the angels burst forth in worship when this promised child was born. Let's join them and let's pray.